Good morning. If you would uh, please grab a copy of God's Word, open it to 1 Samuel 17. We'll be jumping around a good bit, as you can see, either on the screen or in the bulletin. Sorry for that. It's a long chapter, and this was the best way I could find to, uh, to take it all in one go, which I wanted to do. I'm excited to be working through this familiar story. But we'll start reading uh, this morning's text, 1 Samuel 17, verses 1 through 11, then verse 26, then verses 32 through 37, and finally, verses 43 through 53. If you would please follow along, this is the word of the Lord. Now the Philistines were gathered, uh, their armies for battle, and they were gathered in Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah, and Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines, and against And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with the valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted at the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now to verse 32. Excuse me. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail him because of him. Let your servant go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against the Philistine and fight him. For you are but a youth and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And he rose against me. I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Now verses 43 through 53. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. 
This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came to draw near to David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a sword of the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shaaraim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp, and David and plundered their camp. Let's pray and ask God uh, to guide us through his word this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you uh, for stories like these, moments in the history of your people where you have delivered them from great foes. Thank you for the ways that we can see your faithfulness. Thank you for the ways that you show us how you save. Thank you for the ways that we uh, are shown Christ in passages like this. I pray that you would strengthen our faith this morning, guide us through your word, open our hearts and our minds, and call us to yourself. Thank you for your son who fights for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, it's very good to be with you sharing from God's word again. Uh, I've been working through, as I have the opportunity to do so, uh, the story of David's life, jumping from uh, certain moments through David's story uh, to look at David as the true king of God's people. And today we come to perhaps the most familiar story of David's, uh, David and Goliath, a story known by many. And, and, and it's, and it's a, a not an uncommon story uh, when it comes to the history of the ancient world. Um, I don't mean that there are many stories of shepherds in one-on-one -on -one combat against giants in, in the ancient Near East. That's not necessarily true, although you may be able to find some stories in some ancient Near Eastern histories. What I mean is that the kind of thing that happens in this text, a champion's battle, is not something altogether uncommon from the ancient world. What is happening here is something that would happen often as two armies gathered for war. They would gather and face one another. And when, uh, when they had the chance or when one army chose to do this, they would send a champion out to represent them, to challenge their enemy. And the idea was that uh, each army would put forward a champion and whatever happened to their champion became true of the army and the people represented by that champion. The champion who won would give victory to his army and to his people. The champion who was defeated would bring defeat to his army and to his people. What is true of the champion is true of those who are represented by the champion. This is a common practice. It actually has made its way into a movie you may be familiar with, the 2004 version of the Iliad, uh, Troy, where Brad Pitt's Achilles uh, is called to battle in the opening scene of the movie. Um, he, he comes to the battle lines and hit the Greek army faces off against the Thessalonians, and their giant challenges the Greeks. And Brad Pitt's Achilles is summoned, the great warrior, to go and fight for his people. Uh, and his king uh, begs him, asking, look at all these men whose lives may be spared if you go out and fight for them. And Achilles does go, but as he goes, he looks at his king and says, 
Imagine a king who fights his own battles. Wouldn't that be a sight? It's a very interesting line. And today, in this story, we see a true king who does go and fight his own people's battles, and it is a great sight. We see the true king bring victory to the people that he represents, because what is true of the champion is true of his army. David, again, is the true king. That's what we've been seeing throughout the story of David's life. He's the true king who fights his people's battles. And and the way that David does this has all kinds of significance for us. There's theological significance to the the things that David does here. Uh, There's Christological significance. This story points us to Christ. It shows us who Jesus is and what Jesus would do. And the story also has practical significance for us as well. And as, uh, as is the case, we want to understand these things. We want to we do that according to the text. We want to see what God has, uh, has for us. We want to take from this passage what God would want us to take from it. It's really easy for us to do other things with passages that are familiar. Uh, with David and Goliath and other similar passages, we may like to try and find ourselves in the story. Perhaps you've heard this, this uh, passage taught or preached uh, and the challenge has been to be like David, to face your Goliath, to stand against uh, your enemy, to trust God with your challenges. And those are not necessarily bad ideas, uh, but they're not perhaps the main point of this text. If you're familiar with maybe infamous internet sermons, you may have heard the line, you are not David. Perhaps that's true. But it's not necessarily wrong to want to find our place in this story, and that, that may actually be one of the reasons that we have the story of David and Goliath, because it shows us our place in redemptive history, and that's what I want to see today. I think that's the main idea that I want to gather. What is our place in redemptive history? And to see our place in redemptive history, I want to look at this story, this story that is, in a way, a story that fulfills a prophecy from Genesis. Genesis 3.15, we have a promise that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. And the story of David and Goliath is a familiar one, but it's more than just a familiar story of an underdog. It's actually the story of the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman crushing the offspring of the serpent. It's a story of God's enemy, the enemy of God's people. It's a story of that enemy being defeated It's a story of God's people following the victorious king against the enemy. Sometimes when we look at passages like this, we over-spiritualize them. We forget that this is an actual historic moment that happened to God's people, that it's actually a moment that points forward to another moment in history. We want to look at Goliath and see challenge, hardship, fear, distress, and not an actual giant who threatened the lives of the Israelites. So let's look at these characters and understand what God would have us to understand. Let's look at Goliath and not merely see danger, but see the giant blasphemer of Gath. Let's look to Saul and see the cowardly rejected king. Let's look at David, who takes Israel, the fearful army, and transforms them into a bold and joyful army because he, the Lord's anointed, the true king, is brave and wins victory on his people's behalf. As we work through this story with all those characters in mind, and as we try to find our place in the story of redemption, we're going to look at three ideas. First, we're going to look at the raging giant. Then we'll look at the true king. It's our second of three points, but it's probably half, the, half of our time will be spent looking at the true king. And then we'll close by looking at the victorious army. Let's start by looking at Goliath. Um, this is the first 11 verses of this chapter. Uh, we, we are faced with the, the enemy of God's people. 
And I want you to put yourselves in the shoes of the Israelite army, of the, the men of Israel and Judah. These are men who are marching off to war, something that would cause us to fear any rational person to be afraid to some extent. It's a fearful thing to go to war. It's a fearful thing to go to war against an enemy where you will be able to smell and feel their sweat and blood as they try and kill you and you defend yourself and seek to destroy them. It's a fearful thing to march off to that kind of war behind a king like Saul, who has shown himself so far to not be a man who emboldens his troops. He's been foolish. He's been rash. He's been threatening to his own people. It's hard to follow that kind of king against such a frightful foe. But imagine yourselves to be the armies of Israel and Judah. You follow your king to battle, afraid, and when you get there, things don't go the way you expect them to. Battle lines are drawn, and instead of facing your enemy in battle, Goliath walks out of their camp and begins to shout at you and mock you. And this man, this, this enormous giant of a man, mocks and challenges you, calling you to one-on-one -on -one combat. Not just one-on-one -on -one combat against an enormous enemy, but one-on-one -on -one combat where your victory or defeat is the thing that uh, brings about the victory or defeat of your own people. If you are successful, you are a hero. You have brought victory to your people, but you have to face Goliath, and if you lose, your people will be enslaved. It's no wonder that the Israelites were so afraid to go and face Goliath. Not only was he an intimidating enemy, but the stakes were so incredibly high. How could they possibly defeat this giant? And if they lost to him, they and their, their brothers in arms and their families at home would be enslaved to the Philistines. We can sympathize, I think, with the Israelites and with Saul for being so afraid to face this giant, this man who blasphemed God and insulted them to their face. How could you stand against such a foe? And let's understand the, the enemy that they feared a little bit clearer. Let's look and translate the measurements that we have in the Bible so that they mean a little bit more to us. Cubits uh, and, uh, and other things might be uh, accurate, but they're not very relatable. <laughs> Goliath who is said to be six cubits in a span, is nearly 10 feet tall. He's nearly 10 foot tall, but he's not simply just a man who's stretched out, very, very tall, above average guy. No, he's a ten, nearly 10 foot tall man who wears armor that weighs 126 pounds and who can wield and throw a spear that weighs 15 pounds. For context, his armor and his spear weighed nearly three times as much as the average soldier's armor and weaponry at that time. Goliath is not just an NBA player playing sports against English Premier League-sized folks. He is a giant of a man. He is enormous, and he is a, he, his great size would instill great fear for sure. But it's not simply Goliath's size that is interesting in this passage. The author is not merely trying to make us see a very large and strong and intimidating man. There's other things about Goliath's physical description that are significant here. Two things, two words particularly, come to mind when we look at this passage. Uh, when we see Goliath's appearance, in addition to his size, we are called to see him as scaly and bronze. That word scaly, it's not in the, the translation that I read, the ESV, but it's the word that describes the chainmail armor that Goliath wore. And the scaliness of the armor that Goliath wore, that word, scaly, it, it doesn't usually describe armor, but here it does. Every other time in Scripture that we see this word, it actually describes the scales of a fish or of a serpent. 
or even of a dragon. That word does not mean armor usually, but here it's applied to Goliath to mean armor. And the only other time in scripture when this word, scaly, is applied to a man, it's in Ezekiel 29 where the prophet calls Pharaoh that great dragon. This word is meant to uh, elicit an understanding of the man. He's not merely dressed in armor. He's scaly, like a dragon. He's also bronze. And the bronze of uh, Goliath's armor is not just an aesthetic detail uh, to make a vivid story. This word bronze might call to mind other things from the Old Testament. Maybe it calls to mind the serpents who plagued the Israelites in the wilderness, the fiery serpents who bit and killed many of the rebellious generation under Moses. Maybe it calls to mind the bronze serpent that Moses formed uh, out of metal and lifted up for the Israelites for their salvation. The snake to which Jesus compares himself in John 3. Just as that snake was lifted up to save Israel, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The bronze calls to mind serpents all throughout the Old Testament. But it's not simply uh, uh, an adjective that describes the snakes. No, the word for bronze and the word for serpent in Hebrew are the same word. They're the same root word. And if you look at the word for bronze in 1 Samuel 17, and you look at the word for snake in Genesis 3, they are the same word. They're synonyms even. Goliath is not simply a big, intimidating enemy. Goliath is made to look like the serpent, the dragon, the offspring, the seed of serpent, the seed of the serpent. This is not some uh, artistic application. It's not simply a, a creative way to look at Goliath. This is the very point that the author of the text is trying to make. Goliath is the blasphemous enemy of God, the threat to God's people, the seed of the cursed serpent who is promised to be crushed. When you read the story of David and Goliath, you're meant to see Satan, the devil, his seed in Goliath himself. That's the enemy that God's people face. That's the nature of the raging giant of 1 Samuel 17. He is the giant, the serpent who will be crushed. Let's look now, point two, the true king, the one who would come and crush the serpent. Jesus, or sorry, spoiling who this, this David points to, David, rather, um, is the anointed king of Israel. Now, he's not been crowned. Saul still wears the crown of Israel, but he has been rejected by God, and David has been anointed to take his place. And in this story, David's place as the rightful king is vindicated. We, we see that David acts like the king should when Saul fails to do so. David plays the king when Saul plays the coward. And in David's acting like the king, we see that God's choice of David to rule over Israel and Judah is vindicated. This is the right man for the job, in other words. And David shows us that he's the right man of the job in three ways. He, in this story alone, trusts God. And in this story, David is the one who both defends and delivers God's people. And he is also one who fills and form, excuse me, forms prophecy. He trusts God, he defends and delivers Israel, and he forms and fills prophecy. First, how does David trust God? When we encounter David in 1 Samuel 16, we see him anointed, but we don't hear him speak. David actually doesn't speak until halfway through the chapter that we've just read. And the first words in scripture out of David's mouth are, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David, by comparison, shames Saul and the armies of Israel. He is simply, in this point of the story, a delivery boy. He has come to bring food to his brothers, and he, who 
clearly has some bravery and strength. He's fought lions and bears, something I think many of us cannot say of ourselves. He, he's strong and brave, but he has no military experience. And he's this delivery boy who's brought lunch. And he looks at the enemy who blasphemes God and his army, and he alone is bothered. He alone says, this man cannot stand as he blasphemes. Who, who does this man think he is? And he sees the story that he's in. He trusts God. Yes, we've, we've seen that, that Goliath is indeed terrifying. The Israelites and Saul were not without reason for being filled with fear. But David looks at this source of fear and does not fear himself because he knows and trusts the God who fights for his people. David sees and understands the kind of story that he is in. David and Goliath is often talked about as being an underdog story, particularly with sports announcers and sports commentators. We think of uh, matchups where one team is severely uh, unequipped to face the other, their opponent, uh, as a David and Goliath story. David and Goliath is often used as a, as a phrase to capture the idea of an underdog moment. And this story is an underdog story, but not in the way that we think. David sees what John Knox would say nearly 1,500 years after Goliath fell, that a man with God is always in the majority. David and Goliath is, in fact, an underdog story, but Goliath is the underdog. And in this story, the underdog loses. David sees, because he trusts God, that this man who causes great fear is not greater than the man who stands with God. David sees that God's name must be hallowed on all the earth and not blasphemed. He sees that God is the one who commands the armies of heaven, who is a warrior for his people. And he sees that God is the deliverer who keeps his promises, who has delivered his people from great enemies in the past and will do so again. David is the true king because David alone in the story trusts in the true and living God. But that's not all that David does. David acts on his trust. He delivers and defends his people because of his trust in the God who has said that he will deliver them. David sees and hears the mocking of the giant, and he goes out and challenges the giant who would challenge uh, Israel's armies. He goes out on behalf of God's people, standing against the blasphemer. He shows courage when Saul was a cowardice. Some commentators have wondered, in fact, if, if there was another ulterior motive behind Saul offering David his armor. David boldly says that he will go and face the giant, and Saul, who is still too afraid to do so, Saul, who is still plagued by unbelief, by a lack of trust in God, who is still fearful, offers his armor, seemingly to protect David as he goes to fight. But perhaps what Saul wanted was for his armies to look out at Goliath and see a champion walk out for them and see him dressed in Saul's armor and think, finally, our king has gone out to fight for us, not knowing that it was David who wore the armor. But the armor doesn't fit. David refuses to wear it. And David goes out in his regular clothes, not with armor, not with shield or helmet, not with sword. And David lays Saul's cowardice and his lack of faith to bear. All Israel sees the bravery of David, and no one is deceived uh, by Saul's lack of confidence, lack of faith. David plays the king. He is the brave defender and rebuker of God's enemies who goes out for his people. Not only that, but the way, finally, that David goes out and defends his people and faces their enemy both fulfills and forms prophecy. 
David's place in redemptive history is vindicated as he fulfills a prophecy and gives greater clarity to the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy. As I've said uh, in other sermons about David's life, he moves us from the garden of the first Adam closer to the cross of the second Adam. David is, as the Lord's anointed, a small M Messiah. And in this story, he does crush the head of the seed of the serpent. David goes out representing his people and he gives a representative victory to Israel. David sees the champion who challenges God's people and he goes as Israel's champion, knowing that his victory would be their victory and he faces their enemy on their behalf. And as he does so, he refuses to be taken by the serpent's taunts and lies. He refuses uh, and rebukes the blasphemies of the one who challenges God's people. And he does not fear death, but he goes out and he crushes the head of the giant and then cuts it off with the giant's own sword. In the same way that the author is trying to make us see Goliath as the serpent, as the offspring of the devil, he is also trying to help make us see that David is the one who crushes that serpent. That is, again, the point. It's not inference. It's not a creative understanding of what's going on. The author's point is that in Israel's midst on this day, the prophecy of Genesis 3.15 was fulfilled. David is the seed of the woman who crushes the seed of the serpent. That's what's going on in this story. But the way that David does this points to the greater and ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. We, many of us, know correctly that 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 prophecy is about Jesus. It's about Christ. The ultimate fulfillment of the seed who crushes the serpent is Jesus. But the way that David fulfills this prophecy, in part, gives greater clarity to the way that Jesus fulfills it ultimately. When David strikes down the devil's seed, he shows us how the true David would crush the devil himself. Jesus, like David, the big M Messiah, the true son of David, years after David's victory, would go out on behalf of his people as they faced an unconquerable enemy. As humanity stood in fear and trembling, facing sin and death, unable to stand against that enemy, let alone overcome them, the true king, the good shepherd, he comes and he stands out on behalf of his people, knowing that his victory would be their victory. Jesus faces sin and death, and like David, he does so not as a conqueror dressed in armor, wielding weapons, swords, and shields, but as a humble and a lowly servant. Jesus goes, and as a sheep led to the slaughter, he defeats the great enemy who his people could not even look at. And in the same way that David uses Goliath's own weapon, his sword, to cut off the head of the giant, Christ uses the power of death to put death to death. David uses Goliath's sword to slay Goliath. Christ uses death to defeat death. And in Christ's death, we die. And when Christ rose again, he conquered death and gives us life. And Jesus, as our representative, as our champion, gives us what is true of him. What is true of the champion is true of those who are represented by the champion. And in the story of David and Goliath, as we see the way that it points to Jesus, we are called to repent and to believe, to stand behind the true king. Don't stand against the king, behind the armies of the Philistines with Goliath, putting your faith in his brute strength. Repent and believe and stand behind the victorious king who died and conquered death for all who are represented by him. David's place in redemptive history is to show us more of Christ. David's place in redemptive history is to show us how the true son of David would crush the seed of the serpent. 
But what is our place in redemptive history? Where do we fit in the story? Let's look now at the last verses uh, read today, 52 and 53, and, and look at the victorious army and see what they have to show us about our place in history. Perhaps we are not David. That's probably true. This story is not about us standing up and defeating our enemies. This story is not primarily about us facing uh, and defeating our own giants. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't learn from and imitate David. We should. It is good to be like David. It is, it is good to be bold in faith. It is good to, to scorn those who mock God. It is good to rebuke blasphemy. It's good to stand boldly when, when we would want to be afraid. But it is Christ to whom David points. But it would be wrong to say we're not in the story at all. We are. We are in the story as the soldiers of Israel and Judah. This story calls us to stand among Israel's armies, to stand behind the true king. What does it look like, the story tells us, to follow our victorious king who wins our battle for us? Let's read verses 52 and 53 again. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shaarim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from the chasing of the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. In the story of David and Goliath, the small M Messiah's victory over the giant gives uh, joy and boldness. It changes the hearts of the, his people. This army that could not bear to leave their tents and look at their enemy, after their enemy was felled by the true king, they stand with shouts of joy and boldness, and they run and pursue their enemy. After they have been given victory by David, Israel and Judah pick up their weapons with newfound joy and boldness. Their fear are gone because the source of their fear lies dead and headless in the dirt and they follow him. So what does it mean for us to follow Christ in the same way that Israel and Judah followed David in his victory? Because we like them can look and see our enemy conquered. If death has been conquered, what could cause us to fear? We, like Israel and Judah, are called to follow our king into battle with unshakable confidence. We have not been saved by Christ to sit around, to wait with hope, to think holy thoughts and try our best to sin less. Those are not bad things to do. But as the Dutch Reformed theologian Herman Bobink has said in his Reformed Dogmatics, we have not been saved to blessed inaction. Now, Bavink is talking about eternity, the future. But what is true of eternity is certainly true of, of our lives now. We have not been saved to blessed in action. We are to follow Christ in his victory. And it is his victory. Christ has won victory on our behalf. But we are to follow him, emboldened as Israel and Judah were. And even more so because we have not been armed with mere leather and bronze and steel as the armies of Israel and Judah have been. No, with Christ's victory, he has armed us to wear as a breastplate his own righteousness. And we are to wear around our waist the belt of truth and to hold the shield of faith, wearing the helmet of salvation. We stand on the gospel and we wield God's own word. We are to wage war with these weapons against the gates of hell, which Christ has promised will not prevail against us. We are often reminded that Jesus said that his kingdom is not of this world. And it might be easy for us to hear that and to think, that it's less than. But righteousness, truth, faith, salvation, the gospel, and the word of God are far stronger armory and weaponry than any leather, bronze, or steel. The kingdom of God is not of this world, but it is far greater than any of the kingdoms of this world, not lesser. We have been saved by Christ and armed by Christ to follow him and inherit the world as he has promised that the meek would do. 
We are called to be like Peter on Pentecost and to leave our secret places filled with Christ's spirit to proclaim Christ's victory, to preach the gospel, the good news of life uh, and live all of life for Christ the King who has conquered our enemy for us. And it's easy to apply that reality uh, to sharing the gospel, to those in vocational ministry, pastors, teachers, missionaries, the rest. But not all are called to those things. Many are not. And while many are not called to vocational ministry and are still called to make Christ known to those in their lives, there's a lot of life uh, in addition to those moments where we preach Christ. What are we to do with those? How does Christ's victory call us to follow him in boldness and bravery? Well, the enemies of God would have God's people live in fear in all of life. We are called to live boldly in light of Christ's victory. So open Christian businesses and Christian schools that make your communities a better place. Care for your patients with Christian kindness and wisdom, not giving in to the, the medical foolishness of the day that would harm children. Seek to use and have elected and commissioned authority to reward good and punish evil. Repair the muffler at a fair price. Teach young people to love the truth. And in all of these things, do not fear those who would mock you, reject you, discredit you, oppose you in any false way, because you're living all of your life for the living God. Christ has slain the true giant, so we are called to stand and shout with joy, to follow our king against all that remains of the giant's army. For what can these do to oppose the one who crushed the head of Satan? This is our place in redemptive history. We are inheritors of the victory of Christ. We are represented by our king who slayed sin and death on our behalf, who has emboldened us to follow him, to live faithfully for him. We are soldiers in his army. Those who wear his own righteousness, who have been saved by him, live boldly because of all that Christ has done for you. Let's pray. God, thank you for your son. Thank you that we have no reason to fear. Thank you that we can, with boldness, live life in faith and confidence, knowing that Christ has lived and died and risen again. Change us and make us more like him. Make us bold when we would want to fear. Help us to be more like Christ. Thank you for the stories of David and Goliath that show that salvation belongs to you, that just as you saved your people in the ancient past, so you save us today. In your son's name we pray. Amen.